Hello and welcome to Unsupervised Thinking, a podcast on neuroscience, artificial intelligence, and science more broadly. We are a group of computational neuroscientists. I'm Grace. I'm Connor. I'm Josh. And for this episode, we are going to ask the question, what can neuroscience say about consciousness? Uh, And this will probably be a somewhat free-form discussion, but we did read a few things, so I'll just mention those now. We read the two uh, Scholarpedia entries on models of consciousness and the neural correlates of consciousness. We also read a paper called Neural Correlates of Consciousness by Geraint Ries from 2013, and another paper called Neural Correlates of Consciousness During General Anesthesia Using FMRI. And the first author of that paper was Bonhomme, and that's from 2012. Uh, So that's kind of what will be providing some baseline information about neuroscientific studies of consciousness as we uh, try to talk about this broad topic. So I guess we have to start by defining consciousness in some way. Uh, Obviously, that's like a topic that... (laughs) Are we going to get past this? (laughs) I think, you know, we can give it about five, ten minutes. We should knock it out, right? right. Uh, Even though philosophers apparently have been trying for a while. Um, So, yeah. So, consciousness uh, should be thought of, at least for the purposes of this discussion, as like subjective perceptual experience um, that... So, like, it requires, apparently, I guess at least for the scientific purposes, requires that you be able to report that you're having it? Whoa, 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 whoa. No? (laughs) One step at a time. (laughs) (laughs) No. Consciousness is the experience that you have... And could report about. Could, yeah. Yeah. But okay. your your actual experience yeah. that you're having. I, yeah, I mean, that, that makes sense. But I'm, I'm just saying, like, would, for, for scientific purposes, would we be essentially uninterested in the people who are having this experience who can't report about it? Or, like, are, no? <laughs> I made a strong face. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, okay, so, but this is the whole point. It's basically, there is conscious experience, presumably. Yeah. Um, really, the only thing that anyone can know for certain is your own conscious experience. Uh, I'm, I'm like, this is mostly me laying out my worldview on these topics, but there is conscious experience that I have, and I assume that you guys have it, and that other people have it, and probably other animals, and so on and so forth. But all of that is really assumption, because the only thing that I know about for certain is my conscious experience. Sure. And so then, yes, you can study people's self-report of conscious experience, you can study or try to study the extent to which people who are incapable of reporting have conscious experience. And those are all studies of consciousness in some way. So I guess that kind of lends itself nicely into maybe the distinction between the hard and easy problems of consciousness. This, This distinction was laid out by a philosopher, David Chalmers, in the 90s. And that's basically the idea that science or, I mean, there's, there's the idea that there is a hard and an easy problem to consciousness. The easy problem would be things like understanding the abilities of people in terms of what they can experience consciously, maybe what are the biological bases of, of conscious experience as people report it, that kind of thing. The hard problem is the question of why is there consciousness at all? 
why are we not walking around interacting with the world without having any subjective perceptual experience of it like the idea would even be is it is it is it possible that there could be an animal for example or a human-like animal that would behave exactly as a human would behave but not have an internal sense of experience so it would have this sort of full richness of responsivity to its environment and to other people and like kind of from an outsider's perspective act identically but not be conscious just based on that internal metric this is a hypothetical is that possible yeah and so that was something that is referred to as a philosophical zombie would be like a human that by any external measure or even you can consider like even if you looked at their neural activity whatever in any way that you could measure them they are the same as you know any other human like the person sitting next to you could be a philosophical zombie meaning that they just don't have the internal subjective conscious experiences that you have as you go about your day but they could still go about their day just as well <laughs> what <laughs> that's my that's my my first comment this is my little sneer. <laughs> i feel like that's going to be all of your comments so confusing. you're not a big proponent of consciousness it's so confusing <laughs> So, yeah, so maybe articulate what you find confusing about it. Yeah, I don't know. It's just like every every so often there's a conversation about consciousness and it's like just something happens to me. Like I just, I'm just like, uh, I don't. Uh, why is it confusing? Because, I don't know, it just has the feeling of like, I, I, it's like trying to do some really weird, I, I actually don't have, even have a good analogy. I was going to use some trite analogy there about yoga or something, or like trying to bend. It's, it's like mind bending, but it's not really. It's all, I don't know. I, I just I just find it, I'm just too much of a like mathematician or something. I find it very confusing. So it's, it's very, that, that, that question seems very unanswerable, the one. That's the point. The hard problem just seems very. Well, yeah, I think that that's the point, though. Yeah, that's the point. And yeah. people so find you're that right interesting. On, on then, board. Yeah. I mean, I'm the thing that in the context of conversations about consciousness, sometimes I would say frustrates me slightly off, off the bat is when people use consciousness very generically or sort of overload the term. Like when people who take a lot of drugs say something like, oh, it could put you in a heightened consciousness state. Yeah. And there, there's now actually been recent science articles, scientific publications trying to claim these kinds of things like people's neural activity while on drugs is more complex than mm-hmm. their neural activity while not on drugs or something like this. And I just feel like that's that's essentially too fuzzy for us to have any ability to articulate. Like, why why should we assume that because the neural activity has more entropy or something, it's 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 more like productive entropy or w- whatever is the case in the in these papers? I, I guess I just I, I feel like people are inclined to overload consciousness and and essentially project things onto it because we can't we can't decide very precisely or we're all kind of confused about what consciousness means and so people project things onto it basically i mean yeah. i think there, there's a certain part of consciousness that we all kind of know from our own experience like what is it like to be like something rather than nothing uh, maybe is that well i like to like yeah I find sleep to be a very useful tool because, like, when you have dreamless sleep, you're still in the, like, you know, by most measures, very similar to how you are when you're awake, but you're not experiencing anything. The question is, like, why is that not how we are all the time? And so I think that's kind of, like, the hard problem of consciousness. Like, the philosophical zombies are people that are experiencing the thing we experience in dreamless sleep 
but walking around in the world doing things. And so, I mean, the, the, the assumption is that those, like, philosophical zombies aren't real. They're and, a thought like, experiment. can't exist. Like... There is an assumption that they can't exist, but, like, the, the why of that is weird. Like, what is it about, presumably, patterns of neural activity that make it such that we have something that feels like conscious experience? That's, so people that generally assume that thought can't exist? Is that the idea? Is that a, is My understanding, kind of I mean, I, I think there's probably, uh, consensus is a hard thing to come by in, in philosophical discussions, especially like theory of mind, since there, I think, is very little to ground it. But, but I do, my impression is that there's at least a fairly widely held view that like philosophical zombies are almost a thought experiment that sort of nudge people into thinking, okay, so there's something about the way the human brain is or works that requires that consciousness be there. Right. Not requires, but like is cor- strongly correlated with the, the emergence or existence of, of, of conscious experience. Because it, we believe it isn't the case that there are just people who, whose brains and behavior are identical to each other, but some of them have consciousness and some of them don't. So right. it's, I mean, it implies that there's, if not a role to consciousness, at least like something straightforwardly not necessary, but, uh, potentially emergent about it, or something like this. Like it, it, it does relate to, in a in a sort of sort of concrete way, the uh, activity of the brain. Mm-hmm. But I think that that shows. I mean, there are, I think there are a lot of biases that come into play when people talk about uh, consciousness and studying consciousness because. We assume it about other humans. I think it's not obvious to assume it about animals, yet they also display complex behavior. I don't think that it, by default people also assume that animals are conscious. And I don't think that people would by default assume that a complicated network of artificial neurons is conscious. So there's a sense like, oh, but like look at this behavior that humans have. Like I couldn't imagine someone being able to do this without being conscious, but if you see something else do something complicated you don't assume it it does seem like a human bias yeah so this this actually gets to maybe an interesting thing that i feel like is is sort of a a fracture point in terms of how people think about this which is whether you believe that like arbitrarily complicated computational things will just have consciousness emerge or whether it's something special about a certain kind of computation you know in like sci-fi literature and i think philosophers have points taken versions of this seriously for the purposes of discussion you're like will the internet just kind of wake up and and become conscious because there's enough nodes or distributed computers that are like interacting sending some pieces of information to each other mm-hmm. so it is the complexity of that system high enough that it like just has some consciousness some degree of consciousness or or similarly like would it be the case that sort of by accident systems that people design that are supposed to be kind of artificial neural networks or things like this, they could just have consciousness because they're sufficiently complicated. Versus people, on the other hand, who I think have an opinion more like, it seems unlikely that it's it's totally accidental or just correlated with complexity. It's probably a very specific kind of computation that like brains have, but maybe like not, not every piece of computer-like you know, stuff in the universe that's as complicated as a brain would necessarily have it. So you could, you could invent like a fake brain that if it were very dissimilar to a brain, even if it could sort of function somewhat similarly, might not be conscious. And 
I, I think it's it's hard to know where to go with these discussions because. But that kind of thing leads me to the question of like, say we're in some future and we're like starting to be concerned about like, oh, maybe we accidentally made a conscious computer, or maybe like already the internet or whatever. How, what would the test be? How yeah, what would, you would test? be the test? Because I can't, I don't know how to test another yeah. human for consciousness, like in the real way. You can ask them like, did you see that or did you feel that, and they can say yes, but that's. A report that's just behavior. Yes. I'm not directly measuring their consciousness by asking them what they think or feel. It kind of, I mean, so we'll get at the neural correlates of consciousness. I mean, part of the study of this scientifically is like, hey, let's look at the brain while a person says that they're having conscious experience and see what their neural activity is doing. But even in this setting, even in the setting of a, like a system that like could behave like a human but didn't have consciousness, it would still have neural correlates of consciousness potentially. Oh, yes. It would have neural correlates of its reporting that it has consciousness, the even if it didn't. The philosophical zombie has the same neural activity. In, in this yeah. in this version, yeah, yeah. The philosophical zombie has the same claims. So, like, if they say, yeah, I'm having a conscious experience of this thing, and that's, they, they aren't, they aren't having experience of it, per se, the way that, way that humans, but they're saying they do, they would have, let's say, neural activity or some sort of internal computation going on that was reliably correlated with their reporting that they were having a conscious experience. And so you, yeah, it, it does feel like it, it doesn't get off the ground. And, and that, that is kind of the hard problem. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's that, the hard That kind problem. of gets at the sense of the hard problem. Connor, how are you feeling? Um, fine. All right, then let's move on. I really have almost nothing to say about this, but I, I will when we get to more concrete things. Okay. It's like I don't want us to talk about it because it's just like, I don't know, call a famous neuroscientist that we all know sort of denied. <laughs> <laughs> at the end of this uh, like group meeting where people were talking about consciousness I don't know if he denied exactly that he had I think he denied that he, he had said, consciousness yeah. he, he forced people to like really explain in detail what they meant by it and then he like just denied yeah, that he's he had like, then I thing. guess I'm just not conscious <laughs> yeah I'm, I, maybe I'm it's true I don't know yeah. maybe there are zombies among us and if there are I'm going to uh, nominate Connor as one of them, I assume. <laughs> I, I don't. I don't. Yeah. No, but then, but then I'm not a zombie. I know. You've detected yeah, that's me complicated by, thing. Tr- yeah. So I'm just not a zombie at all. It's much if, more if the thing about which the the verbal behavior of a zombie versus a non-zombie disagrees uh, is yeah. their statement of whether they're conscious or not, that's a we- that's a weird one. It's like, <laughs> then, this person is is a zombie ostensibly, but they also <laughs> deny that they have consciousness. Uh, okay so but like what it comes down to really is that science can only speak to the easy problem and that would be this uh set of questions about you know what neural activity correlates with people reporting conscious experience studying things like you know when we go to sleep what changes that kind of thing things that just basically really like it's all based on kind of an individual uh, individual scientists own experience like I know that when I go to sleep I don't have a lot of conscious experience and so I'm going to assume that this person who I'm studying when they're asleep they also don't have conscious experience and so uh, then I'm going to say that I can study what causes consciousness to, to shut off by studying when people go to sleep and so it's this idea that we all have our you know assumptions about what uh, someone who is conscious would do, they would report seeing something, whatever. And so if we study the reports of people seeing things or hearing things, we can say that we're studying a readout of their conscious experience. But that's obviously like technically deeply problematic because you're not studying their conscious experience. You're studying behavior. You're studying their reports. 
and those are different. And it's not the case that, uh, you know, sometimes there are indirect measures of things in science that we allow, like fMRI being a measure of blood flow, we kind of allow it as an indirect readout of neural activity. But we allow it because we're able to do studies that directly probe the relationship between neural activity and blood flow and the signal that's read out by fMRI. So it's not just kind of like on faith we assume these things, the the blood flow fMRI readout is telling us about neural activity. It's actually been probed and looked at to understand the relationship in detail. But there's no way to probe and look at and understand in detail the relationship between someone's report of consciousness and their actual experience of something. You can't look at the actual experience directly in any way. So I think that's kind of like the fundamental principle by which the the scientific study of consciousness like is limited. You can only study Wait. report. Hmm? Why can't you study like if you take that analogy of the analogy of looking at the relationship between blood flow and neural activity? as an allowable indirect measurement and it's allowable because <clears throat> you can st- study the the relationship itself later in more detail if you want to yeah. uh so why is it that you can't study the relationship between conscious experience and reports of consciousness because i can measure both neural activity and blood flow at the same time and do experiments to understand the relationship between them I can't measure right. direct subjective experience ever. Yeah, I can so like, only measure. So it's readout. like so. It's the point is that it's subjective. Yeah, well, the, there's, this, there's, this, there's this phenomenon that kind of somehow is only observable from reports. Like a special viewpoint. Well, it's only observ- observable from reports. There's always like the claim. Well, externally, but it, but it, but like for me, it's observable from my subjective. Yeah, and that, that's like the like fundamentally I, I, weird thing about consciousness from a yeah. scientific standpoint. Part of the uh, part of the observation is self-report. And so there's there are other ways in which self-report is considered like not a great measure in like social sciences like people might self-report as being happy but they're lying to themselves or something. And that's not the problem here. The problem is just that self-report is not consciousness. Conscious experience is consciousness. A philosophical zombie could still give self-reports. Yeah. But like so couldn't you do experiments on yourself or something? Yeah, but obviously that's fraught <laughs> and not exactly science, but that is some of the way that people who study consciousness have tried to make inroads is by self-reflection. I mean, it seems inevitable if we're talking about a if we're talking about a phenomenon that we claim somehow can only be observed subjectively, then you have to do that or something. Yeah, somehow somehow that has to be part of it. But Somehow it also has to be, in order for it to be like a, a reproducible result or a result that's interesting to other people, you can't go off and have this like esoteric personal definition of what consciousness means. You can't say like, I'm a person who's decided to do lots of meditation or lots of drugs and say, as a consequence of that, I have this very personal and esoteric notion of what consciousness means to me. And I'm going to make right. claims about that. That so becomes, to increase your N, you have to just do like uh, an experiment where it's coordinated. Essentially, it would have to be coordinated, yeah. No, but it's more than that. There are other problems. It's also like if you're doing experiments that might manipulate your consciousness, the odds of your ability right. to like accurately report on them is difficult. <laughs> like imagine you like yeah. take some like drug or something that puts you in like a paralyzed state where you have like a crazy conscious experience, but then you also don't remember it. Like then yeah. you had like you had some conscious experience at that time that you will say, oh, I took this drug and nothing happened. Like I went to sleep. 
you know so right. it's just but like, it's fraught to what extent is it just an is it just like a special so there's the subjective thing there's like there's this phenomenon that somehow can you know somehow only be seen or experienced or something or measured maybe um, from a certain point of view namely like from your own or something um, and then there's this other thing which is like it's more general which is like uh, systems that get that are very complicated and are inevitably like perturbed by efforts at measuring them or something like to what extent is like the, does the scientific problem come down to just the, the fact that this thing sits at the intersection of those because you also have problems like that right with like complicated systems in general where you, you kind of you, you always kind of fuck it up by trying to measure it too much and so me- observations are a sort of intervention and that bothers it i don't feel like that's the problem here i feel like right. the, the problem here is i think what grace was saying which is that there is the conscious experience and that is as far as we can tell not really observable and there are neural correlates and let's say behavioral re- correlates of consciousness where behavioral correlates involve things like self-reporting the conscious. We don't know how to observe the consciousness without without self-reporting. Like we can we can use self-reporting to say, well, this neural activity corresponds to consciousness or correlates mm-hmm. with consciousness because and we know that because the person self-reported about it. But there's this fundamentally unobserved thing. And like you can do other things. You can subsequent to to finding that some neural activity pattern correlates with behavioral reports of consciousness you can start using that for other things and you can get indirect from there and you can learn other things about this like complicated space of things that relate to consciousness but all of that is built on this fundamental self-reporting or yeah. yeah this this one step that requires just an assumption or just you know it doesn't it's not anything it's just saying that we're going to use self-reporting and not caring about the fact that you're not directly measuring the thing that you're studying mm-hmm so yeah, so basically that is how a lot of um, studies on consciousness have to go. People will be shown stimuli that are either kind of complicated or challenging, or there are many different ways that we can get into of how people can manipulate what they present to people and then ask them, like, did you see this? Do you have, what they're asking is, did you have a conscious experience of this thing in this image that I showed you, yes or no? And then they can correlate people's conscious experience as it's reported with things like neural activity uh, if it's measured at the same time. But assuming you trust people like on these very basic perceptual things, I mean, it's still reasonable in some sense, like it is still scientific, but there is something philosophically a bit irksome about this removal of the fact that you're like, really, you're still not getting at like consciousness qua consciousness. I just can't, I can't not laugh when you say qua. Qua. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah, it is irksome. And I, what's even more, I get like, I don't, I don't want to say this too strongly because I am not like in the field, but I have a feeling that the, the people who do this science aren't fully appreciative of that like fundamental misstep or like lack of a step in their process. And I feel like they make a lot of assumptions um, just implicitly as they go along. Like even in the Scholarpedia article, there was something like they just made some offhand comment like and this, you know, like, why is the brain conscious, but the immune system isn't? And I was just like, how do you know the immune system isn't like it's just taking all of these basic things that like 
people assume in their everyday life and allowing that to be baked into the science, whereas the whole point of like studying this scientifically is to not allow those kinds of assumptions, I think, because it's not like I, it's not like I actually like really feel like the immune system is conscious or anything or I'm not like it's everywhere, you know, but it's just like you can't scientifically stay, say that the immune system isn't conscious just outright. If you're studying consciousness, you have to define what that is and come up with a test for it, test it on the immune system and say the immune system failed the test of consciousness. Yeah, I mean, like another a similar thing that I think is interesting potentially would be like consider the enteric nervous system or the nervous system like around your stomach and digestive system. Like you feel hungry at various points. Is that a separate entity communicating with you? Or is that a part of... No, like, is yeah, it... no, this article said the enteric nervous system is not conscious, and yeah. I don't know where they got that from. It, it could be that it's like a really low-level consciousness that basically just says, like, I'm hungry, and expects, <laughs> expects that to be remedied by a more complicated organism that kind of enwraps it. Because, like, it's what? not like you get, you don't get much information from your stomach. I mean, maybe some people do. It's it. like, I want food in or food's about to come out. Yeah. That's the, the major signals. So sorry, consciousness is inevitable. Is like totally wrapped up with subjectivity here, right? Like, yeah, you have to have a self, right? Like, because we're talking about it as this thing that's like subjective. It's the special one of the special things about it is that it's like you experience. There has to be a self, right? There has to be like a you. There has to be a thing that experiences it. Yeah. yeah. Right. But what that is is, I think, hard yeah, to Yeah, the define. enteric yeah. nervous system could somehow experience it. I mean, that is another thing that gets conflated a lot is the sense of self. And yeah. so there's the question of like, can you have consciousness without a sense of self and people right. have done certain drugs or meditation practices talk about like my sense of self dissolved but the fact that they can talk about experiencing that suggests that you can be conscious without a sense of self or at least way. have memories of that state i don't know it's yeah that's these are complicated things yeah yeah it's easy i guess if you, if you imagine these things dissolving kind of gradually i guess it can lead you to sort of interesting things like you can imagine your sense of self like slowly decaying or becoming multiple or something or like or like oscillating very quickly or you know like but this this leads to the question that i think is is asked sometimes which is uh like among people who consider consciousness a lot like what's the distinction between you believing something and that thing actually being true so like you could say oh my consciousness is 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 more complicated right now or i have a heightened level of consciousness yeah. you could be wrong about that actually it could, it could be part of your conscious state that you have an inaccurate belief about something about your consciousness. I don't know how that works, though, because if your consciousness is just yourself... Like well, no, your like, what does higher mean? Like, if, if you say, like, okay. if, if you're, like, drunk like... and you say, I have a heightened consciousness, <laughs> like, you could just be wrong, right? Like, yeah, no, yeah, if you just <laughs> This could be, like, that. you rambling because yeah, you're, yeah. you're not making sense. No, if you just but you say But you might that. believe it. Like, and if you be, like, you could believe it because you're being less critical of your own thoughts. Sure. Sure. Fine. In, that, in that case, you you do not have a heightened consciousness. I don't state, think that anyone would that claim that people have an accurate sense of their own consciousness. I just want to complicate what? a bit this <laughs> an accurate like ability to speak about or think about their own consciousness. Okay, so well, there's I, the subjective experience that we kind of call consciousness, and then there's like yeah. reflection on one's consciousness or something. Yes. But you, that yeah. process of reflection is still a subjective experience that you're having. So it is. It's it's difficult yeah it's all recursive and all that crap god and there's so many books about it you know <laughs> just so many books it just feels so ignorant we're like having, you know it's just like every time i have this conversation i feel like i'm starting from zero and it's like why haven't i gone out in the meantime read like 400 books synthesized all of that like knowledge uh i just won't 
but I, I do I, I don't know to me there is something relevant I, I won't I won't belabor this but there is something relevant about the idea that a person could I think very plausibly be incorrect about their own statements about their consciousness if their beliefs are wrong like if you if you, you could say I'm I'm conscious of all the colors on that page but if you're colorblind and actually not seeing all the colors there you, you could be wrong and maybe you're just misusing the term conscious I mean yeah. sort of tautologically you're conscious of all of the things that had made it to your through your perceptual system and things like this but mm-hmm. uh, there's just lots of statements that people can make and without agreed upon language like if you say I, I mean this one I think feel like is an easy one if you say something like I have a heightened conscious when I consciousness when I do this like if I whatever whatever it is I don't want to to, to you know, impugn anything unfairly. If, if, but if you, if, you, if you say, I do this, and it makes me have a heightened consciousness, without knowing what heightened consciousness means, and without being able to sort of measure that divorced from person's self-report, like what if it's the effect of some drug that a person takes, that it makes them feel like they have a heightened consciousness, whatever that means. They don't have a heightened consciousness. They just are more inclined to report that they have a heightened consciousness. Yeah, I mean, that's a complication. Or they might have a heightened consciousness. Maybe they do. Well, I mean, so to be fair, the the scientific studies don't ask people like, "What's your consciousness level right now?" <laughs> sure. Like, <laughs> you feel it heightened. Rate your consciousness on a scale They ask like factual questions. Like, Which, yeah, no, I'm, this is, this is yeah, slightly orthogonal to the science, I suppose. Yeah, and okay. so the reason that we didn't read four hundred philosophy books is that we're supposed to be talking about the the scientific approach. To yes, and let's get to that. <laughs> It's talked about a lot as kind of there being two different components, um, like arousal or level of consciousness, and then the content or subject of the conscious experience. So it would be kind of like like a knob for volume is like your arousal level, and then like the song that's playing is the content of it. So, you know, I could be like kind of drowsy watching a movie, and so like my arousal level is low, and I'm like not fully getting everything that's going on. Um, or I could be like fully awake and watching the same movie. So the content is the same, but the arousal level is different, like that kind of thing. And those are kind of uh, two different aspects of, of conscious experience to talk about. And I mean, based on the stuff that we looked at, it seemed kind of like there's a sense that um, like they'll use studies of anesthesia to look at this arousal knob. And then there will be different studies that are very like precise um, visual stimuli presented or auditory or just some kind of very precise sensory stimuli presented to probe like the content uh, aspect of consciousness. So we can talk about the um, anesthesia studies that look at overall arousal level first, I guess. So it seems like, I mean, I don't know much about anesthesiology, but it seems like there are a lot of different drugs that can be used to put people under and then um, those different drugs might act in different ways. And so most of these drugs were kind of found, I believe, accidentally or just like historically, like it was discovered that this works in as, as an anesthetic. So there's not um, like a lot of core principles that go into this. And so one thing that people who are interested in conscious lo- consciousness levels uh, are trying to figure out is kind of the commonalities between how all these drugs act, if there are any commonalities in terms of how they act on the brain, to get people into at least a state where they do not report or remember having felt pain during a surgery. I mean, that's obviously like the role of anesthesia usually. And it seems like a lot of the mechanisms uh, involve the brainstem, so not 
the cortex, not like the area of the brain that most people talk about in terms of cognition and stuff. There seems to be a large role to be played by the reticular activating system in particular, which is this like set of a bunch of small brain areas that are on both sides of the brain and the brainstem. And these are areas that send projections into the cortex and like emit a bunch of neurotransmitters and stuff. And so they seem to have this ability to control just the overall state of the cortex. And so you can target those areas and inhibit them and shut them down. And then kind of the, the whole cortex gets shut down. And so presumably people aren't experiencing things. And this is also an area that's uh, involved in the wake and sleep cycle. So it kind of makes sense that it's like a target of anesthesia. So I, I think this is interesting. I, to me, this almost feels like it's not really related to consciousness. I mean, I realize this is a big part of what people talk about when they talk about the science of consciousness. But it's like if, if you find a part of the brain that shuts down the rest of the brain when hammer it with some drug. Well, I think there are things that are learned from some of um, these studies. One is that because these drugs do act in different ways and some of them actually like upregulate areas that other ones downregulate and that kind of thing, it suggests that there are uh, multiple routes to consciousness or to non-consciousness in this case. So that's a little interesting. It's not like uh, there's one area that where it's clear, like, you know, if you shut this down, then you go to sleep or something like that. It seems like there are, are multiple ways to put people in a state where they aren't responding to pain. And also there seems to be this idea that it's like interconnectivity that matters, the sense that uh, even if you have different brain areas that are kind of on still and, and they're brain areas that seem like they would be uh, relevant to cognition, even if those areas are on, if they're not interacting with other areas appropriately, then people still seem to be kind of put under, I think is part of it. Because they're looking at these, um, in, in fMRI research, people talk about the default mode network, which is just like um, kind of... Uh, and a pattern of areas that uh, have correlated activity when a person is just kind of like sitting silently in an fMRI scanner. And so they talk about the way in which these areas are regulated and kind of they stop being, um, they start to be anti-correlated with the, the thalamus, uh, an area that sends inputs into the brain as people go under. So it's like the cortex isn't, receiving information from the, uh, the the lower areas in the brain and that's somehow you know important and I think I, the reason well, that, that's a cool, that's a cool finding yeah, yeah. <laughs> and the reason cool. that these studies I mean they kind of lay down some fundamental ideas that the people who come up with theories of consciousness I think utilize in a lot of ways okay. even if just like metaphorically almost and they also say that during anesthesia you could still have lower sensory areas like primary visual cortex, like the first area of the visual system, can still maybe be active, but if later brain areas aren't, like the frontal and parietal areas, then the person is still under. So there's these weird, it's, this, it's like a set of brain areas that need to change in certain patterns uh, to get people to, to be under. From a, from a purely sort of observational or descriptive standpoint, this seems like it's interesting to know which brain areas need to be active. Um, so I'm yeah, totally, totally on board with that program. Um, I thought there was this thing about ketamine being really different or something. Yeah, exactly. Ketamine, like, upregulates some of the yeah. areas, maybe like... Singulate, th yeah, it says singulate, posterior singulate thalamus, putamen frontal cortex. The frontal cortex? 
Anyways, it's <laughs> yeah. a lot. But so, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Like, there are different means to at least what is practically the same end. I mean, maybe the experience of going under with ketamine is in some way different, but if the idea is that you're not conscious, then I don't know what that means. So, but, I mean, it might partly just be complicating the story by saying that in addition to the whole brain being turned off as one way of not being conscious, there are a lot of other ways to be conscious that correspond to, like, this really rich space of, like, you're confused, you forget things, you don't feel sensory inputs, but you're still kind of there, but then you forget things because when you're not experiencing any sensory inputs, there's not much to, like, remember. Right. Um, so th- th- there's presumably a very rich space of, like, diverse ways that you cannot experience things yes. while still having your brain nominally alive. Right? Yeah, I mean, but that's the point, though, and that's kind of what... It, it does complicate things. Well, but... It makes it harder to pinpoint exactly, like, what are the necessary... If I'm trying to play to skeptic here, uh, there's... My, my concern is, like, that you might not learn anything from, like, the sort of infinitely rich ways that you can shut off the brain or break the brain. Like... So you're, you're more interested in, like, the positive studies, like, what allows people to be conscious of things. Now. To some extent, because pr- presumably... Even when given a brain, like as the starting point, there are perhaps many ways for it to fail. Like you, you can imagine, like the, the set of functioning brains is like small compared to like all possible ways the brain can be behaving. And so you want to, yeah, I mean, my inclination is to say, let's try to characterize the commonalities among conscious brains. I mean, there's, there's an extent to which it makes sense to like, if there were a certain gatekeeper region that's like, you could turn this on or off and it would be conscious. But if it turns out that there's just like extremely diverse ways that the brain can be shut off uh, or you could be not conscious through perturbations of the brain, like I'm, I'm imagining the set of possible conscious brains is sufficiently small relative to this diverse space that like you, you gain a lot more from characterizing yeah, the positive states of consciousness. Okay. Well, we can move on to the studies that probe people when they're awake and just trying to make them kind of not consciously aware of things or consciously aware of things at the experimenters' uh, Wait, so desire. just before we get to that, um, in these, in these uh, anesthesia studies, right, you have some drugs, you put them into a person, and then with, you know, anesthetics that work, general anesthetics that work, eventually they'll kind of go to sleep. Or they'll be in some, well, it's not sleep, but it's like, deep anesthesia anyway like you know there are things like for example people being totally under you hear these stories right these horror stories of people being totally under during surgeries but actually having ex- experienced certain things like they're they're conscious but they these can't kinds respond of things, or yeah. it's like signal yeah. or something like and that. they made some horror movies about oh really this god it's awful <laughs> but, so there's also like they do these things where they you know you do a dose dependent thing you give different doses and you look at at um brain activity in kind of in between and they talk about these networks you talked about grace these fm like to kind of define look doing fmri and like so areas different you know collections of brain areas that have correlated activity um the default mode network what's the other one the ecn no hang on it's no it's it's the the dmn the default mode network which is about which is medial frontoparietal involved in the awareness of self apparently and then there's the dorsolateral frontoparietal executive control network, the ECN, which is involved in the awareness of the environment, apparently. And then there's auditory and visual networks. And so there's this thing where they, apparently the DMN and ECN activity f- are anti-correlated and fluctuate in time. And then 
the claim is that as you go under, you see these kind of gradual changes where these things become less strongly anti-correlated. So that's, to me, it seems like there's probably a whole... Uh, the question I have is, like, do we know, are there like behavioral studies? We're going to talk now about behavioral studies, largely kind of perceptual studies and things. We'll talk about the details where they do clever things with perception and try to... Are there studies where they do like gradual, gradually puts people under different levels of anesthesia with different drugs and then do behavioral like studies on them while they're in that state or is it all... You can imagine like fun experiments. I don't know of anything like that. I mean, maybe that's not... Given that it's not clear how these drugs work, it's like, what would you be testing then? Yeah. Just that when I give you this drug, you're like less able to perform some tests. Like in what exact way are you less able? And you, you know, I wonder what the ethics of this is. Are you allowed to do that? Well, so in some cases, they've done interesting things where anesthesiologists or doctors uh, are the subjects of studies that are essentially non-medical, anesthetic, consciousness-related studies. Mm. So I had seen something a couple of years ago where that this was indicated. So it, it, it's easier to get ethics protocols passed when the subjects are all anesthesiologists, for example, for something that's that's related to consciousness, where it's, it doesn't have a medical purpose and you're not piggybacking on top of some clinical right. uh, investigation. Yeah. yeah, I guess, yeah, getting this actually done would be hard. Mm-hmm. But presumably th- those people's time is sufficiently valuable that like they don't do a lot of these studies, <laughs> I think. Yeah. They get paid quite a bit, so you have to pay them quite a lot to have. Aren't them they all like totally doped up in their spare time? I thought that was the that was the, the <laughs> stereotype of anesthesiology. <laughs> I cannot speak to that. <laughs> right. But yeah, so these these studies that don't involve administering drugs that are just kind of probing people in a supposedly awake state. Um, a lot of them have to do with the visual system because it's um, like the input to the visual system is easy to control. Just like put people in a dark room and show them very particular stimuli or just put goggles on them either, even and show them very particular stimuli. And I guess a concept um, of the visual system that will be important to understand in some of these uh, is the fact that you have two eyes and uh, those eyes send information into the brain that starts to mix around like the primary visual cortex and so what you can do is show people different images in each of their eyes and then see kind of which of the images leads to a perceptual conscious experience or kind of just like what happens if you show two different images to uh, the two eyes and so that's the basis of a lot of studies uh, and this is called binocular rivalry. If Because basically when you do that, a lot of the times what happens is that uh, people experience one of the images for a while, and then in a way that's not really under their control, uh, they start to experience the other image. And it just kind of goes back, to, back and forth. Their perceptual experience goes back and forth on some time scale, even though nothing about the images themselves are changing. And most people have probably seen optical illusions that try to produce a similar thing. So a common one is the Necker cube, which is just like if you ever tried to draw a three-dimensional cube on a two-dimensional page, that's basically what it is. And so you can view this uh, cube as going kind of like towards you or I guess away from you is the the two different ways. Or it's yeah. up or down. So there's just like two different ways to interpret this cube because it's a it's a drawing of like a three-dimensional thing. Uh, basically, it's page. you don't know if the like the the corner is in the back or the front. 
Yeah. There's like yeah. a corner that overlaps. Because it's like a transparent three-dimensional cube. cube. Yeah. And so where you interpret where the corner is tells you something. And there's other ones where it's like, the, another one of the famous is the vase face one, where it's like two faces in profile, which are symmetric. And like, they kind of together, their profiles cut out the side of like a cup or a vase or something yeah. like that. And so basically... There are like people who will just automatically see these things one way or another, or if you stare at it for a while, it might change from one version to another. Again, with nothing about the image changing, it's just something in your mind is causing the perception of these things to change. And the dominant view of these is that they're like bistable, meaning that even when you know that they could be either interpretation, at a given moment, you really strongly kind of your subjective experience or perception of the thing is that it's one or the other. And it's hard to, to force them to change. You know what's really hard? is to try to see the Necker cube not as in three dimensions. To just see it as like a pattern of lines on the page. Okay. That's hard. Yeah. If you think of it as tile, like bathroom tile, it helps. It works? Yeah. Okay. I got it yeah. to work. I'm trying to do it. I'm yeah. trying to do it right now. Yeah. I can. I mean, like, I mean, I think if you play with these things, you can get, you can kind of break them. Like, I, I can, I stare at the face, face, and I can see it like as a face and a face at the same time. Like, I can Whoa. see both of them. But, no. <laughs> but I, the, the point is, is that like when you look at these things for the first time or whatever, you yeah, you. I think usually most people have like a strong. Like, there's a there's a dominant. Way. You see yeah. it one way or the other, and then after looking at it for a long time, you can force yourself to switch back and forth. Yeah. Yeah. And so. You could imagine designing a study where, for example, you have a person and you let them look at it for a while and they report to you when they're seeing it one way or the other way and you're recording their learning activity. Or if it's a person who's looked at it for a while, you could maybe not, like tell them, okay, now try to switch it back and forth or something and you're recording their neural activity. Mm-hmm. And you can basically say, can you decode from the neural activity which state they're perceiving? Yeah. And so this is a way of attempting to sort of read from their neural activity which conscious percept they have. It's it's still grounded in this self-report in some sense that we've we've talked about earlier, but at least the premise is that uh, you you now have access to the, the the like the direct thing you want to get at, which is like the neural activity of the conscious experience. Yeah, because importantly, nothing else is changing. It's only the conscious experience that's changing, um, and so you. The, the neural activity that changes in a correlated way to that like kind of must be or is assumed to be related to, to the processes that lead to a subjective experience. And usually like those types of studies tend to find something like the cells in the neurons in the early part of the visual system, like the primary visual cortex, don't change their activity with the, the change in percept. They're kind of constant when given a constant image but later areas in the visual system and into like the frontal and parietal areas, their activity changes do correlate with the reported change in percept. So it almost like sets up a, a, a style of thinking where you kind of want to point to like, this is when uh, neural activity, like this is the part in the hierarchy that like matters for percepts or something like that. Uh. Right. But then, yeah, right. But this doesn't necessarily have much to do with consciousness. Is always the thing, kind of. Right? Well, that that should be added to yeah, every yeah. sentence. Yeah. <laughs> no, but I, I actually do. I mean, I, I feel like this is a pretty good way of investigating. Things. No, I mean, it's but it it will always have the yeah. fundamental problem that a philosophical zombie could do. Yeah, this I mean, it's thing. based on self-report. But I, I'm gonna like if, if I come in with what I think is a sort of pragmatic and somewhat reasonable operating assumption that most yeah. humans, 
like let's say let's say your average healthy human that you pluck for one of these scientific uh, for one of these scientific <laughs> studies is <laughs> pluck you know you, you pluck them out of the population at large uh, is is has conscious first person yeah. experience so you, you take this person and you, you give that you they're the subject in one of these these scientific investigations where they've done some self-reporting but let's say we believe they're self-reporting or at least on average the person isn't lying and then you're looking at the neural activity that cor- correlates with their perception i think it's a fairly yeah. safe assumption no, it seems honestly. like definitely uh, totally that, fine to me <laughs> yeah that that you are that you're getting you you are in fact when you look at the neural correlates of their reported percept in these kind of simple bi-stability cases that you're getting at something that's probably quite general across human beings. No, and that's does, all fine. Yeah, but it does still, correlate with their first-person experience of consciousness. That's all fine, but it still has the same fundamental problem that all scientific studies of consciousness have. I could build a model where there are... I mean, people have built models to explain binocular rivalry and bi-stable percepts and that kind of thing. You could build a model that switches between two percepts um, and then you could say, you know, only this later neural activity feeds into the readout mechanism, and so then that model reports back and forth over time. There's just there doesn't have to be any con- conscious subjective experience to yeah, make you a could, you could that make can do this. you could make like just yeah, some sort of very generic stochastic oscillator that like kind of randomly switches between two bistable states. Yeah, and people it's, have, it's clear, but that's clearly not a model of the brain that gives rise to bistable percepts. Is, there's no this this study doesn't get at like the hard problem of consciousness. Yeah, no, I agree. Nothing maybe will ever get at the hard problem or something in science. But like even this doesn't even but this doesn't even get at like necess- doesn't necessarily get at like the interesting soft parts is, is the point, right? Like I think yeah, you could but like you I think the thing that's missing in the the simplified models is that they can't report. So that the interesting thing is something that it's like what are those brain areas that here that are required yeah, that are what the, what's being correlated here is the brain areas that change in a way that's correlated with what the person reports, right? So in a, a simple model, yeah. can't report anything. So there can be no part of it that correlates. Well, I mean, you can make a readout. No, but it can't do the reporting. I think, like, to get to, to if you're going to use this, um, if you're going to use this thing, this indirect measurement of self-reporting as like a, an important part of your way of studying consciousness or something, you have to. You need to have like a system that can reproduce the richness of human that, self. That's the self-report that's itself is going to have to be a big part of what you study like the, the actual, model yeah yeah. yeah yeah sure yeah but so i guess an overall thing here with these kinds of studies that are using awake people and testing like what they respond to and whatever it's just this field exists as perception science or even psychophysics like the fine-grained exploration of people's ability to sense things and report their ability to see or hear or whatever mm-hmm. And it can exist in that as that field without any reference to consciousness. But then somehow yeah. you can do the same exact study and say, I'm studying consciousness. And that's just the point where I'm saying, like, it's not, I mean, yes, yeah, so because of my point, own yeah. subjective experience, I agree that this is kind of studying consciousness. Because when I look at these things, when, like, my percept switch switches, it's like, well, that's kind of crazy. And it just, like, I get the urge to say that, but this could just exist as perceptual science. I wonder could there be different like could you do experiments this is why I was to me it seems like you need to be doing both you need to be putting drugs in people and doing behavior and brain imaging all at the same time like you could do experiments where you would train people to like press a fucking button or something when they when the Necker cube switches or, or whatever um, and then like measure their brain activity and then like slowly put them to sleep but keep doing the experiment 
I think people have done this like by giving people caffeine and seeing that it like switches or increases the rate at which they switch or something like that. I don't think they've done it to my knowledge. But like maybe like, there'd be areas that are like, you know, this is always associated with perceptual switching independent of how awake you are. This, you know what I mean? But then there's an area that starts to change when you can still see perceptual switching happening at higher level. I don't know. You know what I'm saying? Like you need to do like loads of probey things or something. <laughs> it just seems like, yeah, it seems like you need like comp some semi-complex analysis of the behavior like just perceptual switching by itself is not rich enough yeah it has to get maybe part of grace's point that i think i'm i'm very sympathetic to is that there's a way in which a lot of what's done because it's getting at what we think of more as the soft problem in some ways is feels like standard behavioral psychological or neuroscientific science of in some cases fairly mundane features of behavior or neural activity like yeah very generic stuff and the fact that it's interesting comes from its connection to something that is not really being studied you know these things related to the hard problem like we're not like we're it's cool that you have perceptual bistability when you look at the necker cube but it's not necessarily the case that we would find that as fascinating as we do if we didn't associate the findings of that kind of science with the prospect of learning something about consciousness, which feels like a cool and you know loaded topic to, to many people. Yeah, well, so I kind of find the Necker cube and binocular rivalry like interesting, interesting in its own way, yeah. but it's like I do research that's kind of similar to yeah. that kind of stuff. So maybe that's why I'm even more like critical of its uh, purported like heightened status as consciousness research I don't know like I think we should, in a way I'm t- tempted like if you're trying to actually do science you have to kind of like to some extent ignore this notion of our, the hard problem but like but but maintain maybe the hard problem is some kind of weird infinite limit right on some spectrum but like you could just say you, you would want these studies to move further along the spectrum right um, that's kind of what I was trying to say before what is it that you know perceptual switching seems too low level it seems like you can easily imagine that like very small animals actually that's not that's actually interesting is that true but to me it seems like kind of very likely that rats for example experience perceptual switching but i often oh yeah but i I think of them as less conscious than us but maybe they're not you know but yeah i mean i'm sure that lower animals fall prey to optical illusions and maybe they don't always fall prey to them and so that would kind of mean that sometimes they're perceiving it one way and sometimes they're perceiving it a different way so like given that kind of thing then it's like what is it that's not quite consciousness e enough about this thing and so then let's move further in that direction Uh, to me it seems like changing the not just a binary thing not just like a report of like this or that but like something more i don't know or the, the pu- putting drugs in people seems tempting but maybe you're not allowed to do that you keep saying uh, that <laughs> you're also using a very awkward answer. phrasing of yeah. putting drugs yeah, in people pluck people out that was, that was intentional <laughs> <laughs> okay so connor's solution is drugs right. because he doesn't like consciousness yeah, as yeah, a study yeah. so um so another uh, illusion that uh, one of these articles talked about was what they call the cutaneous rabbit, which is basically just uh, part of the motivation, I think, was to, to show these kinds of effects even in different sensory modalities. So this is a thing where you like touch someone on their wrist and then you touch them 
uh, quickly at two other points up their arm, and they get kind of a hallucination that you have touched them at a few different points in between. So it's like a rabbit hopping up their arm. There's a way to like induce this sensation even though you've only touched them That's three cool. times. Um, and uh, so it, it shows that you can have a, a percept of a thing that didn't happen. You can have like a conscious experience supposedly of a, a sensation that like didn't happen. Nothing touched their arm. And then in that one they said that the fMRI results suggest that the early areas of the um, uh, somatosensory cortex that registers touch show activity as though they had been touched. And so that's maybe a little bit in contrast to the visual studies that show that early areas of the visual system don't have the, the illusion. Uh, they kind of faithfully report the actual input, but later areas of the visual system correlate with the illusion. This is saying that the early areas of somatosensory cortex also had like the the illusion of this which maybe just means there's different mechanisms for inducing different illusions mm -hmm. or whatever yeah. i mean it, and it could be bottom up it could be that like at the sensory side there's like some sort of auto completion yeah. that occurs in the sensory periphery like yeah. at the level of your skin or something like this maybe or it could be alternatively in either case that like higher level brain regions feed back into lower level areas and activate them based on some sort of inferred pattern completion. I mean, all right, so that's that's like the question to study in some sense, maybe, or you know, or other possibilities. Right. Another thing that's interesting is studying kids. Wait, sorry, what did you say? Studying kids. I, I want to know if like these kinds of perceptual illusions. You want to push? I know, sound like I a crazy person. <laughs> you want to pluck I'm a kid out and tired. put drugs in them? <laughs> can't, be, can't be bothered. <laughs> to, <laughs> to, um, but like uh, you know, like studying children and animals, do they have? Um, do they experience perceptual illusions in the same way that we do? That'd be cool, no? Like do a like a study with, like if you give a baby a fucking Necker cube, can you train it to like see it different ways? Probably. How would you know, actually? God. There would be different reported. There, are, there. Are, I mean, people study infants and they find ways of like getting information out of them so it's it's plausible that you can try to do something do they like put that. Drugs the in thing them that too? i do know that's semi-related put drugs no, in no, there's no drugs <laughs> <laughs> this is not how i expected drugs to come up in the context of this conversation usually the people talking about it are on drugs you're not like trying to yeah like what if we could learn about consciousness <laughs> <laughs> that's how you talk Something that I can tell you regarding children, if that's what you're after, uh, is that I think when children sleepwalk, they tend to have no memory of it, whereas adults are more likely to have a memory of sleepwalking. So that's something related to consciousness in children. It doesn't right. involve drugs. I'm sorry. Like, but why do we, they sleepwalk more, right? Yeah, I think they're more likely to sleep. Why, why do they do that? <laughs> I don't get that at all. That's because their brains are going crazy. They're kids. I mean, they're also going. more likely to wet the bed, right? So I mean, the, <laughs> they're the, just confused about no, sleep. Sleepwalking is not. Well, I guess you could say it's just like a lack of control, but it's like a pretty cool yeah. lack of control. <laughs> like, I agree. <laughs> you know, like it's much okay, higher it's... dimensional than wetting the bed. <laughs> Actually, I, mean, yeah. I was talking to someone the other day who studies peeing. In mice. I thought that was cool, a novel thing to study. Anyway. Yeah, I never thought about studying pee in mice. Yeah. Because somebody has to. Because it's actually high, it's high level, but it has, it's, like a, it's like a binary, it's one of those behaviors, like a binary readout type of behavior, but actually like lots of things contribute to the decision to urinate or not. 
Well, it's very important to them because they like mark territory. Exactly. And stuff. So it's like it has all these high-level social inputs. That I are... think it's important to humans too. It probably has social context and social. Maybe to men, you guys have communal peeing in ways that women don't. Well, I mean, like also just with the simple. Like I'm sitting in my office right now, right, and I pretty, I could go like to the bathroom, but I'm I'm gonna wait. Because <laughs> yeah, no. that was more that was more the level that I met. I, I, I was thinking more direct. <laughs> Social hierarchies are reflected in the dynamics. Of, uh, <laughs> I don't know what goes on in there. Uh, is there anything else we want to say about the perceptual studies of uh, consciousness? Or can we move on to some models that have been put forth? Let's talk about the models. Yeah. Okay, so a lot of people have put, put forth models. Uh, and it seems like with like varying degrees of... Competence. So first of all, what would, what would a model of consciousness be? Well, that's okay. kind of the problem is that, I mean, you can look at like a list of models of consciousness and I, to my mind, they kind of tackle different things. Sometimes it's like, you know, what physical structure underlies consciousness. Sometimes it's what types of information should enter conscious awareness. Uh, it's, it can be like on different levels like that. Um. So that's kind of the complication. But these are just basically like just overarching things that people have put forward to attempt to kind of consolidate the understanding of consciousness in some way, I think is, I guess, the best definition of a model of consciousness. And usually these are put forth by neuroscientists or psychologists or sometimes physicists, but... (laughs) You say with disdain. In this case, yes. I mean, when we get to them... (laughs) Uh, so one of them that I think is old and classic, classic is called uh, Barr's Global Workspace Theory. And I, like, I remember hearing about this, I feel like, in like psychology class, not about consciousness, but just about like cognition and thinking like, generally or like working memory or something. And it's just the idea that conscious content is globally aware or globally available to the brain. Like it could be used for decision making or for attention or for memory or just like information that is currently like written on the blackboard of the brain and can be used for multiple different things. And so this is like a descriptive model of consciousness. Well, I I mean, it could be proposing some sort of computational framework, like the brain has some sort of working workspace like a blackboard that yeah. it sketches stuff onto. Yeah, but I feel like that's a description of well, but the it, experience it, or of like yeah, it could, it it's almost like an, it could also be like an algorithm statement to some extent. Like the computation that the brain is going to do is this and like you could uh-huh. implement that various ways. Yeah. Like, and I guess it does they talk about it as though this blackboard has limited capacity and like whatever is active at the moment will kind of try to compete with and shut down other things that are trying to be the the active content so it is kind of a mechanism of sorts at, at, a, at a rather high level yeah but i think people have like run with it and done like a lot of different things to interpret or refine it or whatever another thing is daniel dennett's multiple draft theory which says that basically like the brain is constantly processing a bunch of things in parallel and whatever is quote-unquote conscious is whatever has the biggest impact on other parts of the brain and so this is like a really like hands-off agnostic kind of like we don't even even have to talk about consciousness in the subjective sense this is just whatever information whatever activities in the brain turn out to impact other activities the most that's like the conscious thing but i think dennett is like 
he he might not believe himself to be conscious either. Like he's like a skeptic of there being a heart problem. So in some sense, that's like a limitativist, or yeah, it's just saying that there's no problem. There's no problem. It's just it's a materialist. Yeah, and, you're saying that that consciousness is just the thing that the brain is doing, basically. Yeah, I guess. I mean, it's saying that the you are you are you know in quotes conscious of the thing that your brain is most doing in some sense. Yeah. This is probably a simplification, but uh, yeah. that's at least... I mean, there's maybe. something nice about it, because it's just, like, all internally defined. It's just all brain stuff. But yeah. then it feels like it doesn't address the philosophical zombie problem. And that's because I think Dennett is on record as saying, like, that's an illogical thing to suggest, and it's not a problem. Then there's uh, Tononi's information integration theory, which um, is something that I've heard about a lot in neuroscience. I think... Partly because it comes with like a calculation that leads to a number that's called phi, and I think people just like having something concrete to work with. So, in some sense, that's more a metric of consciousness. It's saying this is how much this is how we can quantify. Well, it says consciousness corresponds to the integration of information or the capacity of a system to integrate information, and so this this one yeah comes with a number which lets you to quantify relative amounts of consciousness. Yeah. Um, yeah, so it calculates a number, and this one is actually one that was, I mean, I don't see how there's any other way to describe it than it was, uh, it came about via introspection, because it comes from these, like, first principles of consciousness that are, like, consciousness exists, for one, it's structured, it uh, is specific, so, like, it's structured in that there are multiple different things that are in your conscious awareness at a time, it's specific, like you're having one particular experience right now out of many possible ones. It's unified in that you're having only one, and it's definite, and I don't remember what that really refers to. Um, but, so it was like these kind of introspection-based things, that like this is what consciousness feels like, then that led to um, like a model that was meant to be able to capture all of those things. And then a calculation of how much a system can integrate information. I think the this phi number is supposed to be like in in the weakest part of the system how much integrated information can it carry so that's like the the lower bound on how conscious the system can be or something I was going to say that in it's funny in this Hakon Lau paper there's a sentence where he says like he's reviewing the he's reviewing the proceedings and the talks given at a consciousness conference and he's talking about these two things IIT and GWT integrated which is the information information theory and the global work right. theory and he's, there's a sentence where he says however in the discussion so it was a discussion about these two things however in the discussion there was a sense that it is difficult at this point to distinguish empirically between the two theories even for the proponents themselves empirically though so the point is like maybe they they're conceptually distinct but like how do you test? I guess, yeah, but I don't... There's a related point, which is that when you look at the computation for integrated information, it's it's a, it's a basically a very hard uh, computation to perform. It's considered, like, you couldn't do it on the human brain. Like, it's at least with current computational power, it would be impossible to calculate for the human brain. Like, you can only do it for small systems, and the difficulty of computing integrated information as a quantity about a system scales very poorly with the number of constituent components mm -hmm. in a system. So it's like... Basically, for really complicated systems, we will never be able to compute the, the, the number associated with that system. Which makes it 
not seem like a very practical system yeah, to apply. Because I think the idea was supposed to be like, once you can calculate the phi of a system, then you can like say it's this much conscious, and therefore, you know, maybe that leads you to some moral conclusions or whatever. But in some do. sense, if we're if we're claiming that it's yeah not computable, then it's yeah. like kind of unfalsifiable. Yeah, somewhat. Because also but then, the, like, if it really is like we're gonna set a, a limit or something, like we're gonna pick a particular phi, but we don't even know the phi of humans. I mean, I think the the argument around that would be that you could try to approximate the computation of it uh-huh. and like get estimates or bounds for a given system on what it's it's. It's also is. a fact that this is all. I mean, it's like made up. It's <laughs> even if you could calculate it, it's still you're just saying it's not like, I trust this system that yeah, somebody made it up. It hasn't been <laughs> validated in any. I mean, it's, how could you? Yeah, I mean, I think the idea would be that you would you can you can get intuitions behind it, and you could try to like associate different if, levels of integrated information with like different states of consciousness or something like this. I I don't know. Yeah, I, it's still just saying like this is a number that matches my intuition. Well, then just use your intuition. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, agreed. Some other models. A lot of times oscillations get brought up, like the lamacortical rhythms are important is a, a theory. Um, I don't know. Yeah, Jesus Christ. <laughs> Anyways, uh, but then, um, okay, so, well, some that are really weird, I think, usually do come from people that are thinking along the lines of physics. Um, there's... Whenever there's a deviation from maximal entropy, that's a sensation. Like if neural activity gets a, a sensory input, that will make the neural activity deviate from its maximal entropy, and then like that's why. So like you have wind is conscious or something, <laughs> like waves. <laughs> wind makes. We, we should nickname it the neural conscious. wind theory. <laughs> it's neural field, so it's not that far. Off. Oh, neural field. Okay. Um, there's in the well. There's another one that's also like. Neuron neural activity generates electromagnetic fields and therefore consciousness, I think. <laughs> Clearly, I don't have a deep understanding of these, but there's like a reason. It's because most of the field doesn't take this stuff too well, seriously. Yeah, we assume. Yeah. Um, we, we're, we're probably coming off as slightly like obnoxious, but like it's pretty... I think we're doing an honest representation of what neuroscience feels about a lot of the... I mean, it's known that like you can only study neuroscience after you get a Nobel or at least tenure. Like, you can only study consciousness. Consciousness, sorry. Yeah. You can only study neuroscience <laughs> after you get a Nobel. <laughs> no, no, no. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. It, it's, this is one of those fields, and, and you do hear this. With, it's worth keeping this in mind. You do hear this within academia that like basically there are professors in various fields that start off and gain tenure through doing work that is considered to be widely credible and interesting, and then they move into more speculative fields, like for example the study yeah. of consciousness. Where and that, yeah, they're allowed to say things. Yeah, it's not just consciousness, other things. Fields. Yeah, many different fields. And they, they study the things that they study because they have the freedom that well-earned fame in a different field yeah. got them. Um, Famously, Francis Crick, who uh, was part of the team that discovered the structure of DNA, went on to study consciousness. Yeah. With some Why neuroscientists. Yeah. yeah. So it's yeah, it's not. I mean, I, and I have no problem with people doing it. But I think it it would be inaccurate to say that like this is all established science that neuroscientists know about. It's like it, it is. And a young a, a young scientist who works with one of those people might may have quite a difficult time of getting a job on their own. Yeah. If if that was what their you know contributions early career were. It's possible that that's changing though because there are these like journals and conferences now that do just outright say that they're. 
they're doing consciousness. Yeah, I don't know. So I don't it, would, know. it might depend on which department. Uh, like, if it yeah. depends probably on who the the senior people in the department are, and maybe it's the case that even if like you worked with a, a person who was in a neuroscience department studying consciousness, that when you got your job, maybe your job would actually be in philosophy department or some yeah. department yeah, that's yeah, more possible. sympathetic to the study of consciousness. Yeah. Um, a theory of consciousness that even like people within the study of consciousness and neuroscience agree is ridiculous is the ones that have to do with quantum mechanics and quantum effects and like Roger Penrose's theory about microtubules and entanglement and all that kind of thing. Uh, so yeah, that would be an example of someone earning fame in another field and trying to apply it to, to consciousness. Or trying to leverage their fame to, to make extremely speculative statements in a field that they're not even just speculative they're just like stupid there's a difference between you know like you can make speculations (laughs) that are plausible and then it's like oh that person's being bold and daring or you can just say things that like everyone else can like turn around and give you a back of the envelope calculation why that's like completely infeasible and yet you continue to like push you know it's like yeah um and then yeah, I do feel like in consciousness, like you are allowed a lot of breath because it's an understudied yeah. topic. And so like if you come up with some kind of just slightly interesting concept, people are like, oh, OK, yeah, let's see where like that takes us. But not not the quantum stuff. Um, so some other a lot of examples of different models and theories have to do with self modeling or self referential loops. Um, and so there are ideas about um, attention to memories is what leads to consciousness or attending to your own Mm. attentional system. Um, So Mike Graziano has the attention schema theory, which basically says like, in order to control your own attention, you need to have a model of your attentional system. uh, And therefore you can get this like meta attending to your own attention. And when you ever, like we can talk about- Which is terms of awareness. Yeah. And so it's like, if we talk about I'm paying attention to this person over here. We would talk about it that way. But I guess his idea is like when we talk about paying attention to our own internal attentional systems, we talk about it as awareness and consciousness. Um, And then there are um, Mike Shadlin has a paper that's about um, basically normal decision making processes within the brain being like used to decide what enters consciousness. Like you're the things that enter consciousness are those things that a non-conscious decision-making process has decided is important to your actions. Like you're deciding to engage with something, and so it enters consciousness. Could be. There are other ones. <laughs> there's one that there's an a, a idea called the supramodal interaction theory, which is like you have a bunch of different kind of systems in competition in your brain that want control over your body, and so they have to enter consciousness to like resolve themselves so that only one system controls your body. Like you have different urges or needs that would lead to different movements in your body that you need to consciously process those things so that you only uh, choose one action, I think is the idea. So yeah, so some of these are like which things should enter consciousness. Some of them speak a little bit more towards the structure of the system. It's just like tackling it from a lot of different angles. Yes. So do we have... Any thoughts on these models or any more thoughts on the scientific approach to consciousness? I like that guy Metzinger who has the self-model theory of subjectivity. But it's just the one that says that 
it's because you built a model of yourself something like that yeah but it's really nice you should like listen to his talks he seems like he knows a lot of stuff and it's just like fascinating maybe maybe it's just how science appears when you don't get the field probably is i really like listening to him talk like he just uses these weird terms like phenomenal self models and then a phenomenal self model and then what is it uh, a phenomenal model of the intentionality relation just these kinds of like things real, it's real convincing sounding to me you know he sounds real he sounds like very smart when you listen to him i like him i bet he knows what consciousness is excellent contribution any other thoughts i guess what i would say is that i am interested in studies of the neural correlates of consciousness but i'm kind of content to study them under a different name mm-hmm. And just say, like, we're studying visual awareness or attention, that kind of thing. Yeah, I think it can be too easy to view these things when you, when, when you come from the more, like, circuits, like low-level parts of, or medium-level, mid-level parts of neuroscience. It can be too easy to find this stuff, like, frustrating and, yeah. and unclear. Reading a few of these things definitely did make me, definitely made, made, me, made me see why people find there to be, like, not just philosophical questions, but like actually interesting scientific questions to kind of grapple with. I feel like there are scientific questions. I don't yet know if I'm convinced that they're mm. interesting ones, because again, to me, they, they almost feel like they're only interesting due to proximity to something that they aren't directly yeah. studying. So like, I, I think perceptual bistability is kind of a cool phenomenon. And I think it's interesting that we can characterize from the brain which state a person is perceiving at a given moment that's cool it's not clear to me that we learn anything about the mechanisms of Mm -hmm. that switching or the sort of underlying mechanisms which give rise to the kind of complex entity that can even have first person experience of consciousness in the first place by studying those things so like i I do think that they're they're cool and and it's it's not like i would say don't study them i would say yeah I'm, i'm interested in the results of those those studies but whether or not they pertain as closely to consciousness as there's a presentation that they do, uh, I question. But I guess I kind of came away um, a little bit feeling like got a little bit of more of that insider vibe from reading some of these things. And then, you know what I mean, kind of like started to identify a bit with the goal. Some of their enthusiasm. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, and to sort yeah. of see why you would be wanting these things and, you know, to be related to this ultimate, like, this really interesting thing and... You know, being hopeful and or kind of pushing, you know, yourself and others to kind of make them more related yeah. and stuff. Till next time. Question mark. <laughs> hey, if you're still listening to this, you must really like us. So how about you go to iTunes or Stitcher and rate the podcast? Give us some feedback. You can also go to our website, unsupervisedthinkingpodcast.blogspot.com. You can comment on different episodes, or you could give us ideas for new topics you want to hear about. We would love to hear from you. Thanks. Thanks.